Um, do keep Joshua uh, chapter 10 to 12 open in front of you. That's what we're going to be looking at this evening. Let me pray uh, as we come to God's word. Uh, well, as you've probably picked up from uh, the reading and from the preaching term plan that we've got, um, over the next couple of weeks in the book of Joshua, we're going to be covering some, some pretty sizable chunks. Uh, and so my aim as we do that is obviously not to go verse by verse, otherwise uh, we're going to be here all night. Uh, so we've got lots of chapters to cover. Um, and so instead, the idea is we're going to zoom out a little bit as we look at these chapters and try and pick up some of the big themes uh, that we see come up uh, as we go through. And as we've just had read this week, uh, we're going to be doing that by looking at chapters 10 uh, to chapter 12. But before we get there, um, just flick back to chapter 9. Flick back in your Bible to chapter 9. And look at chapter 9 verse 1. We read this last week. I'm just going to read a few verses again. Chapter 9 verse 1 says this. Now when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, that's the things to do with Israel... The kings in the hill country, in the western foothills, and along the entire coast of the Mediterranean Sea, as far as Lebanon, the kings of the Hittites, the um, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, they came together to wage war against Joshua and Israel. Uh, At the start of chapter 9, we see for the first time that the people in the promised land were not just waiting to be attacked by the Israelites, No, they were going to go on the offensive. They were going to take the fight to them. And if you were with us last week, you'll know that we kind of paused the story to hear about the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites who tricked Joshua and the Israelites into making a a treaty of peace with them. Um, And we thought about that last week. But now we pick up the story again in chapter 10. We press play again on these, uh, this coalition of kings. And as we've just had read to us in chapter 10, at the start of chapter 10, we see that losing Gibeon to the Israelites was a serious blow to the other cities in the promised land. Because Gibeon was an important, strong, powerful place. And so the other kings in the area, well, they're they're concerned about this treaty that's been made. And and so they decide at the start of chapter 10, the best thing to do is to gather together and wage war against the Gibeonites to, to, to eliminate that threat. Understandably, the Gibeonites panic and they call for help in verse 6. They call for help from their new allies, their new friends, Joshua and the Israelites. And because of the oath that Joshua made back in chapter 9, he gathers his army together and he goes to the aid of the Gibeonites. He goes to war. But as we read what happens next, we see this big theme that we've been seeing through the book of Joshua. As Joshua and the Israelites march into their next fight, we see that it's the Lord who wins the victory. It's the Lord who wins the victory. Uh, Just look at what the Lord says to Joshua before they even get to Gibeon in chapter 10, verse 8. Look at chapter 10, verse 8 with me. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. Uh, The the Lord reassures Joshua, I have won the victory for you. It's guaranteed. 
And then when they arrive at Gibeon, look at what happens in chapter 10. Uh, the Lord threw them, that's the other armies, into confusion before Israel. So Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road, going up to Beth Horon, and cut them down all the way to Azekah and Machedah. As they fled before Israel on the road from Beth Horon to Azekah, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them. And more of them died from the hail than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. Just as we've been seeing each week in Joshua, it is the Lord who wins the victory. And that's the repeated theme through our chapters this evening. I hope you pick that up from those readings. Chapter 10, verse 14, surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Chapter 10, verse 30, the Lord gave that city and its kings into Israel's hand. Chapter 10, verse 42, all these kings and their lands that um, Joshua conquered in one campaign because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. Chapter 11, verse 6, the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them because by this time tomorrow I will hand all of them slain over to Israel. As you read through those chapters, which we haven't had time to go through every single verse this evening, but as you, as you go through, you see again and again and again, it's repeated, the Lord gives the victory. Until we reach chapter 12, where we essentially get this big, long list, this victory parade of all the kings that the Lord has defeated. And so the big message of these chapters is the big message of Joshua, isn't it? God is faithful to his promises. He will win the victory. He will give his people the land. There is no doubt about those things. That's the big message, but then the question we need to think about this evening is what does that mean? What does it mean for the Israelites to enter into battle, to enter into the promised land, knowing that victory was certain? What did it look like? What did it feel like to live in the light of God's promise of victory? And what about for us? What does it mean for us? Because we're going to see later on, as we look at God's victories in Joshua, well, it should lead us to see his ultimate victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. It should lead us to the cross where, where the Lord won that decisive victory against our greatest enemies, the enemies of sin and Satan and death. It should lead us to the cross and then it should cause us to long for that full and final victory that Christ will have when he returns. When there'll be no more pain or suffering or sin or death because Jesus has won. You see, if you're a Christian here this evening, then like the Israelites in these chapters, you're on the winning side. There is no question about the outcome of your life. Victory is guaranteed. But what does that look like on Monday morning? What does it mean as you go to work or to school to, to live in response, in, in the light of Christ's victory? Well, I think we see three things in these chapters, three big things that help us see what it means to live in the light of Christ's victory. And the first is to remember that you're in a fight. Remember that you're in a fight. Look at chapter 10, verse 7 with me. 
Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. The Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. As the Israelites respond to the the Gibeonites' call for help, the Lord reassures them in verse 8. Victory is certain, Joshua. You don't need to worry. I will give the enemy to you. The Lord promises victory, but then notice how Joshua responds to that reassurance. Or, Or more, notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't say, well, okay, well, if the battle is already won, well, then I don't need to send a few of my, my soldiers, a few uh, detachments to go and fight those kings. There's no need for the whole army to go. He doesn't say, well, if the battle is already won, well, then I'll leave my elite, my, my SAS at home. I'll just send the juniors. I'll send the young uns to go and get some practice. That makes sense if victory is guaranteed. No, no, the Lord tells him the battle is won. The outcome is certain. But then in verse 9, Joshua takes his entire army, his best fighting men, and he marches all night to get to Gibeon. The outcome is certain. The war is won. But the battle must still be fought. And that's been the case throughout this whole campaign, hasn't it? Right from the very beginning, back in Joshua chapter 1, the Lord said to Joshua, be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land. I will give you every place that you set your foot. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. From the very beginning, the Lord promised Joshua victory. Yet as we've seen over the last few months as we've worked our way through these chapters the battle still needed to be fought and we can see that in these chapters alongside the repeated refrain through chapters 10 to 12 that the Lord won the victory we also see that it was Joshua and the Israelites who fought the battles they are the ones that attacked they are the ones that went into battle they are the ones that won the fight And so there's no sense that the Israelites just breezed into the promised land with no resistance and nothing much for them to do. Although it only takes a few minutes to read these chapters, in 11 verse 18 we see that Joshua waged war for a very long time. You see, victory was certain, but the battle still needed to be fought. And the same is true for us, isn't it? The Bible repeatedly describes the Christian life as a battle, as a fight. Not against Canaanite armies, but against those dangerous opponents. The world, the flesh, and the devil. We fight against the world as we seek to swim against the tide of our culture. As we stand and speak for Jesus in a world that tells us to sit down and be quiet. Oh, we fight against the flesh as we seek to put to death our sinful desires, as we fight against our greed or our lust or our pride or our selfishness. And we fight against the devil as we counter his temptations and his accusations with God's word, with God's truth. And so the Christian life, it's a battle. Yes, the war has been won, but the fight is a very real thing. It's a daily reality. Uh, 
Living in the light of Christ's victory means remembering that you're still in a fight. We're going to think more uh, about what that means and involves next week. Uh, But then secondly, it means remembering who's in charge. Because sometimes uh, when we're in this fight, it can feel like the enemy is too strong, too powerful, too overwhelming. And what we tend to do is lose heart. And so it's in those times that we need to remember who's in charge. Uh, That's what's going on in this fairly gruesome scene right there in the middle of chapter 10. Uh, We didn't read it, but just look there with me. Uh, In chapter 10, verse 16, the Israelites have defeated these uh, armies that have gathered together, and the five kings that led them uh, have run off and hidden in a cave. Uh, And They get caught up and and trapped in the cave by Joshua. Uh, And then we read in verse 22, chapter 10, verse 22, Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave, and bring those five kings out to me. So they brought the five kings out of the cave, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon. When they brought these kings to Joshua, he summoned all the men of Israel and said to the army commanders who had come with him, come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came forward and placed their feet on their necks. Then look down at verse 26. Verse 26 says, Then Joshua put the kings to death and exposed their bodies on five poles. And they were left hanging on the poles until evening. At sunset, Joshua gave the order and they took them down from the poles and threw them into the cave where they had been hiding. And the mouth of this cave, they placed large rocks, which are there to this day. Why does Joshua make such a spectacle of these defeated kings? Why not just kill them and then move on? And why does the author of the book of Joshua think that we need to know about them in so much detail? The answer, I think, is there in verse 25. Verse 25, Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Be strong and courageous. This is what the Lord will do to all the enemies you are going to fight. You see, making a spectacle of these kings, dragging them out of the cave and getting the soldiers to put their feet on their necks. It wasn't just crude bragging. It wasn't macho soldiers having a little bit of fun. No, it was a picture. It was a picture for the Israelites to remind them who's in charge. A picture to remind them that that though kings might gather together with all their military might and power and strength, they cannot stand against the Lord. It was a picture to remind God's people who's in charge. To remind them that the Lord is sovereign. And as they were reminded of that fact, verse 25, they could be strong and courageous. Remember all the way back to chapter 1. That is what God said to Joshua right at the very beginning, wasn't it? Be strong and courageous. Why? Because I am with you. Because I am with you and I will give you victory. And now he says the same to the people. He says, look. Look, just as I have defeated these kings, just as I have put them under your feet, so I will defeat all your enemies. So be strong and courageous. 
And this picture, this scene with the five kings, it clearly had the intended effect. Because at the start of chapter 11, we read about a new coalition formed, by, formed against the Israelites. This time it was the kings of the north. And this time the opposition is even greater. Just look at chapter 11 verse 4. Chapter 11 verse 4 says they came out with all their troops and a large number of horses and chariots. A huge army, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. All these kings joined forces and made camp together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. Or later on in chapter 11 we meet the Anakites. The Anakites were those giants of men that terrified the Israelite spies back in Numbers the first time they came to the promised land. And now the Anakites are swept aside. They're defeated. Despite this overwhelming opposition, Joshua and the Israelites, they continue to trust the Lord. They fight on because they know that the Lord is sovereign. They know who's in charge. And so they know that victory is certain. And so by the end of chapter 11, we read that Joshua took the entire land just as the Lord had directed Moses and gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to the tribal divisions. Then the land had rest from war. The Lord says to Joshua and to the Israelites, I am the sovereign Lord. I am in control of all things. The mightiest kings, the most powerful armies, they cannot stand against me. So you can be strong and courageous. You can keep going in the fight. And he says the same to us today. Towards the end of John's gospel that we're going through in our morning services, Jesus gathers together his disciples to prepare them for what life will look like as one of his followers. He says there's going to be great joy and blessing in knowing him, in knowing the Father. But he also says there'll be great opposition. He says in no uncertain terms, if you follow me, people will hate you. People will oppose you. They will persecute you because that is what they have done to me. Following Jesus means facing opposition. The world stands against God and so it stands against those who belong to him. But then having explained all that, Jesus says at the end of John 16, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In the face of overwhelming opposition, Jesus says, don't be afraid. Don't lose heart. Be strong and courageous. Because I'm in charge. And I've overcome the world. And so that is what we need to remember. That on Monday morning, we need to remember who's in charge. We need to remember that we belong to the victorious King Jesus. Remember, Philippians chapter 2, that one day every knee will bow to Jesus. Remember Ephesians chapter 1, that God has placed all things under his feet for the church. I remember 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that it's at the cross where Jesus wins his greatest victory. At the cross where Jesus defeats sin and death. Enemies far more powerful than a thousand armies as numerous as the sand on the seashore. 
but that through faith in Jesus, we have his victory. His victory is our victory. And so we have nothing to fear. And so tomorrow as we go off to school or to work or as you meet up with your friends or you turn on the news, remember who's in charge. Remember that through the cross, Jesus has won the victory. That through the cross, God has put all your enemies, all his enemies, the seen and the unseen, under Jesus' feet. Which means you don't need to be afraid. You don't need to lose heart. Instead, you can be strong and courageous. You can be strong and courageous as you keep fighting sin. You can be strong and courageous as you keep standing for Jesus. You can even be strong and courageous as you face suffering and death. Because Jesus is in charge of all those things. And you are his. Remember the fight. Remember who's in charge. And finally, remember that prayer is powerful. Remember that prayer is powerful. Chapter, uh, chapters 10 to 12 give us this clear picture of God's victory, his power over his enemies. Uh, but in chapter 10, we also see God's power over his creation. Uh, in the middle of this battle with the Amorites, we read in chapter 10, verse 12, uh, that Joshua prayed and that the Lord changed the length of the day. Uh, it's not completely clear for, from the text whether uh, Joshua prays for a longer night so that the armies can complete their march uh, to help Gibeon or whether he's praying for more daylight so that they can finish the job, so they can have a complete victory over the enemy. Uh, we're not sure, it's not clear and so it's not really the point. Uh, the point is that we see that God has power over his creation uh, we might find a, a bit in the Bible like this a, a bit weird, a, a bit hard to get our head around that, that the sun stood still. We struggle to see how that's possible. Uh, but Joshua 10 shows us that when it comes to his creation, God is in full control. The sun rises and the sun sets at the Lord's command. And so the reality is that it is no harder for God to make the sun stand still as it is for him to make it travel across the sky as he does every single day. God is powerful over his creation. However, as, a, as amazing and unique as this event is, it's not the most amazing thing in these verses. Just look at verse 12 with me. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel... Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, Son, stand still over Gibeon, and you, moon, over the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped, till the nation avenged itself on its enemies. As is written in the book of Jashar, the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There's never been a day like it before or since. A day when the Lord listened to a human being. What's the most amazing thing that happened on that day? Well, verse 14 says that it was that the Lord listened to a human being. Did you see that? The author of Joshua looks at the event, these events, he looks at the sun standing still, and he says the most amazing thing that happened was that the Lord, the creator of the universe, listened to a human being. 
The fact that God listens to his people's prayers is an astonishing thing. I don't know about you, but I, I regularly fail to see how amazing prayer is. I regularly fail to appreciate the privilege of being able to talk to the creator of the universe whenever I want. Prayer is a miracle of God's grace. And sometimes we fail to see the privilege of that miracle. Sometimes we fail to see the privilege of prayer. And, and sometimes with that we fail to see the point of prayer. Because we can think if God is in control and if the victory is already won, well then why bother praying? Does it really matter if I pray? Is there any point to praying? But that's clearly not what Joshua thought, is it? The fact that God had promised victory and the fact that he had complete control over his creation, he didn't stop Joshua praying. No, it led to him praying. And it led to him praying really big prayers. And I think if we understand these chapters of Joshua rightly, if we remember that the Christian life is a fight, and if we remember that in that fight, God is in charge, he is in control, well then surely we will be like Joshua. We will be people who pray. We'll be people who pray really big prayers. We'll pray big prayers for people to become Christians. From the most hardened atheist to the most apathetic family member. We'll pray for the work of the Gideons as gospel, the Gospels go out and are picked up in hotels and schools and read and the Spirit does his work to change lives. We'll pray for those things. We'll pray big prayers for the strength and the ability to keep fighting sin. To keep fighting against those most deeply rooted sins. That we think there's no way I could ever change that. No way I could ever stop that or be different in that area. We will pray for those things. And we'll pray big prayers for courage. Courage to speak about Jesus despite the fiercest of opposition. We'll pray those big prayers knowing that we are talking to the God who stopped the sun in its tracks and the God who delights to listen to and answer his people.